Hello and welcome to the Chess Journal Podcast, where each month we host a discussion with the authors of important articles from the current issue of the journal, adding context and commentary to the challenges facing clinicians in the fields of pulmonary, critical care, and sleep medicine. To introduce today's topic, here's your host, Dr. Dominique Pepper. On behalf of CHEST, I would like to welcome you to this month's CHEST podcast. My name is Dominique Pepper, and I'm the moderator of the CHEST podcast section. Thank you for joining us today for what will be a really informative conversation on the management of community-acquired pneumonia, both in immunocompetent and in immunocompromised patients. Today, we're very fortunate to have Drs. Ramirez, Dr. Hill, and Dr. Pletz as our guests, and we'll be discussing Dr. Ramirez's article entitled, Management of Community-Acquired Pneumonia in Immunocompromised Adults, a Contensus Statement Regarding Initial Strategies. We'll also discuss the accompanying editorial by Dr. Hill. Subsequently, um, we will discuss Dr. Plett's article entitled, An International Perspective on the New 2019 IDSA-ATS Community-Acquired Pneumonia Guideline, a Critical Appraisal by a Global Expert Panel. So uh, we'll go ahead and let uh, each person introduce themselves. Uh, Dr. Ramirez. Uh, yes, um, I'm Julio Ramirez at this moment at the University of Louisville. I'm the Chief of Infectious Diseases and the Director of the Fellowship Training Program. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Ramirez. Uh, Dr. Hill. Hello, I'm Adam Hill. I'm a professor of respiratory medicine based at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland, UK. I have a special interest in respiratory infection and been involved with international guidelines in pneumonia, bronchitis, and cough. Thank you, Dr. Hill. And finally, Dr. Pletz. My name is Matthias Pletz. I'm board certified in internal medicine, respiratory medicine, and infectious diseases, and I'm the head of the Institute for Infectious Diseases and Infection Control at the Jena University Hospital in Germany, and I'm also the Deputy Speaker of the German Community Acquired Pneumonia Network, CUPNET. Well, it's an absolute pleasure to have all three of you on the panel with us, and we're very privileged to have such an expert panel. Um, We're going to start off with Dr. Hill, and maybe you could set the stage for us on why we need consensus statements for community acquired pneumonia, and why it has arisen that we have different consensus statements for patients with the immunocompromised states and those who are immunocompetent. Dr. Hill? Thank you. Um, international studies have shown that investigation, treatment, and site of care is highly variable in practice. Consensus statements allow evidence-based practice based on best available evidence or, if not available, best expert advice. In my opinion, these guidelines will drive consistency in the management of community-acquired pneumonia. Ultimately, the aim is to improve outcomes with less morbidity and reduce mortality rates. We know that the international guidelines to date in community-acquired pneumonia focus on community-acquired pneumonia in the immunocompetent and not in the immunocompromised patient. So having specific bespoke recommendations in the immunocompromise is really helpful for the international community. So, Dr. Hill, one of the questions that sometimes arises is, what is immunocompromise? Maybe you could uh, start us off on that, and then I'll turn to Dr. Ramirez. So, the guidelines are really quite helpful in defining what is immunocompromise. There's a whole variety of patients that are immunocompromised. It's from people that are immunocompromised because of their own health status or their own disease-modifying therapies. And the guidelines are really helpful at classifying the, you know, what is classified as immunocompromised. And I quite like the way the article did it because it defined that people can have opportunistic pathogens as a result of immunocompromised. So it's not people on any disease-modifying therapy. It's actually if you're on disease-modifying therapy, that is more likely you can get an opportunistic pathogen. So it's quite helpful, the guideline. Dr. Ramirez, maybe you could comment on how you went about uh, defining immunocompromised and what your methods were for formulating the consensus statement. 
Yeah, I think that this is it's an excellent question, uh, and I always say a good question is the one that has no good answer, and this is a one of these ones. And, and there was a lot of discussion uh, among all the participants of the consensus how to define uh, immunocompromise. Um, there's, uh, because there's no question that, that, that any person with COPD, bronchiectasis, especially with diabetes, um, uh, they, they are, the immune system is not normal. Then uh, we decided that there is a person with a normal immune system, there is a person with an abnormal immune system, and then there is the level of being immunocompromised. And the separation between abnormal and immunocompromised, as Dr. Hill mentioned, for us is the difference between you, can, you are at risk of being infected with the regular respiratory pathogens, what the guidelines suggest as core pathogens, but then you are at risk of being infected by non-core pathogens, the immunopathogens that are essentially opportunistic pathogens. And this is the group that is immunocompromised. Then based on the risk for you to be infected with pathogens beyond the core pathogens, they find you as being immunocompromised. And, and we, uh, one area that is simple, because we all agree that um, the person that is HIV infected by the CD4 count is below 500, where you are already, your immune system is abnormal. But your CD4 count is 400, you are increased risk for pneumonia, but it's going to be streptococcal pneumonia. But when your CD4 count is below 200, you are at increased risk for pneumocystis. Then at that point, below 200 is immunocompromised. Between 200 and 500 is abnormal immune system, but not immunocompromised. Then it's a matter of, of defining what patient is at risk of opportunistic pathogen. And one case, and we've been, we went back and forth uh, in our discussion, we always say it's the patient without a spleen. Because a patient without a spleen is a definite key risk for encapsulated pathogen. But a patient without a spleen is an increased risk for streptococcal pneumonia. But it's not an increased risk for pneumocystis or aspergillus or, or viral pneumonia. Then we didn't have in our list of immunocompromised patients with computer pneumonia a patient with a splenectomy. Because this patient is abnormal immune system but doesn't reach the classification of being immunocompromised because the therapy is supposed to be the one that is suggested by the regular computer acquired pneumonia pathway. Then we can see, and I'm going to, I mean, uh, we can see that, that you have a person with normal immune system, probably risk of pneumonia minimal. A person with abnormal immune system, COPD, CHF, diabetes, and these are the computer acquired pneumonia guidelines in the non-immunocompromised. And then person with very abnormal immune system, immunocompromised, risk for opportunistic pathogen. Now we have the new consensus of guidelines for the immunocompromised. Then I can see here the gradation of the guidelines at the immunocompromised patients. So let's dive into what uh, your recommendations were and which people actually met the definition of immunocompromised and what your recommendations were based on side-of-care pathogens, uh, workup, and empiric uh, therapy. Um, Dr. Ramirez? Then um, we were uh, discussing that the, for, for empiric therapy on the immunocompromised uh, patient, it uh, was important for us to define, uh, first of all, what are the likely pathogens. And we decided to, because likely pathogens immunocompromised, you have more than 200 different organisms. And we decided to concentrate on the likely pathogens for the, for the likely pathogens that we have the possibility of using appropriate antimicrobial therapy. And the likely pathogens were summarized just to the pathogens that you have empiric therapy. Uh, and, and then uh, there was a discussion. Um, we have the, the regular guidelines tell us the core pathogens and the empiric therapy for the core respiratory pathogens, the classical typical, atypical, and viruses, not immunocompromised individuals. Then the question was, if the patient is immunocompromised, when are we supposed to increase empiric therapy 
to cover unusual opportunistic pathogens. And we agree that two things need to happen in the patient. One is that the person needs to have risk factors, particular risk factors, epidemiological risk factors, physical examination, history, laboratory, to suspect an opportunistic pathogen. This is one criteria. And the second criteria is that if you suspect the opportunistic pathogen, if you don't treat the opportunistic pathogen immediately at the time of hospitalization, then the outcome of the patient can be worse. Then these two criteria need to be fulfilled for us to increase empiric therapy to cover for the possibility of opportunistic pathogens. So, Dr. Ramirez, um, as you mentioned in your article, um, 20 to 30 percent of patients with community-acquired pneumonia are immunocompromised, and I think you've just stressed now the importance of initial therapy to ensure that you treat the right pathogen to improve outcomes. I'm going to turn our attention to Dr. Hill. So, Dr. Hill, when you uh, had the chance to review this consensus statement, um, what did you regard as the strengths, and uh, uh, what did you feel needed to uh, further development? So... Uh... Well, I think that the article was excellent because it, for one of the first times, going back to the first point, it defined what was immunosuppression. And as I said earlier, that I really like the way that they did that. You know, they described significant immunosuppression as an underlying disease or medical therapy that poses an elevated risk of pneumonia, not only by common organisms that cause community-acquired pneumonia and immunocompetent, but also a virulent or opportunistic organism. That is really important for clinicians to understand what is defined as significant immunosuppression. I then really like the way that they actually tried to look at what were the risk factors, for example, multidrug-resistant pathogens, and they also very helpfully defined for the various levels of immunosuppression what the likely pathogens. And they offered first-line potential therapies for these patients. And I think clinicians find that really helpful because they need guidance. So I think if the literature tells you that a certain organism is likely with a certain therapy, having a clinician having expert advice on what the initial therapy is is really helpful to a clinician. At the end of the day, I think what the article highlighted to me is the real importance of actually detecting the likely organism. And I think that's one of the areas I think we need to really work on in the international community is about trying to get what the pathogen that's causing the community-acquired pneumonia and then we can actually move forward from that to get um, pathogen-directed therapy. Maybe you could comment on the role of invasive testing, for example, bronchoscopy, serology, obtaining sputer um, and other lab work yeah. because the uh, the pathogens that can cause uh, pneumonia in immunocompromised patients are pretty broad. Absolutely. And I think one of the real worries is that we're relying on inadequate samples to assess what's going on in the lower respiratory tract. My view is, particularly in the immunocompromised patients, is you've got a high-risk group. I think that what we should be doing is... Uh, computed tomography of the chest to try and actually localize where the radiological shadowing is. If the patient is fit enough, and I I say that because they have to be fit enough, then I think targeted bronchoscopy with lavage is the ideal method to do it. In an ideal world, you'd also consider a transbronchial lung biopsy, but in practice, a lot of these are sicker patients, but a targeted bronchoscopy with lavage in my opinion, using modern molecular methods is, will give you the highest diagnostic yield. What we really don't know is that if you use um, poorer samples, things like spontaneous sputum, whether they're really just upper respiratory tract commensals rather than actually representing the lower airways. So I'm a real fan of using targeted bronchoscopy with lavage. And patients are not fit enough for it, I think an induced sputum using hypertonic saline is the next best. But again, the question is whether the samples you're getting are representative of the lower airways. So, um, so to summarize, my feeling is that we should be doing targeted CT scan of a chest and we should be doing targeted bronchoscopy with lavage. 
Dr. Amir, as your comment uh, based on the work that your team did, uh, what workup should would you recommend, and uh, what empiric uh, therapy would you initiate while awaiting for uh, the test to come back? Uh, yes, I want to. Um, I think that uh, just to make a general comment, uh, when when clinicians read the the consensus statement uh, in the in the supplement material, we express essentially what were the recommendations for the different uh, for the different groups, uh, and because I think it's important to recognize that even though there was agreement, more than 75% uh, agreement, uh, it's also important to recognize that, that for some questions we barely make 75% agreement. And, and this was one of the most difficult areas of to reach agreement. The need for the bronchoscopy, what type of bronchoscopy with bronchial lavage, because uh, we can clearly see that, that in different institutions, in different countries, physicians use different uh, approaches. Uh, and, uh, and I think that it's, uh, it's important that, that in some, uh, in some our uh, pulmonologists, uh, in some institutions, they say, we do the patient arrive, uh, as Dr. Hill mentioned, we want to have a CT scan, we want to know the area, and we want to just sample this area specifically. But there were uh, other uh, uh, areas or other regions that just do the, the bronchoscopy with bronchial lavage, uh, there was no question. But it was interesting to see that, that there was some hesitance in some uh, areas in different countries that say, well, we have uh, sometimes complications with the bronchial lavage, and we want to go empiric and use the bronchial lavage only if the patient fails empiric therapy. Now, I have to tell you, this was a minimal number of, of um, members of the consensus. But I just want to mention that, that this was an statement that some people suggested. Now, the majority agree uh, with Dr. Hill's recommendation. Early bronchoscopy, uh, directed bronchoscopy, this is the best uh, approach. But I want to say that this is an area that has been, there was a lot of uh, discussion uh, back and forth. Some people want bronchoscopy immediately, others want uh, empiric therapy and bronchoscopy uh, in, within 24 hours, and others want to see what happened with empiric therapy. I remember that in one, one hospital in the United States, they say, well, uh, because we do bronchoscopy immediately, they decided to do bronchoscopy even before starting antibiotics. They say, we don't want to start empiric therapy and in three hours do bronchoscopy. We want a bronchoscopy to have the best yield. They say that if it's going to be a delay of two, three hours of antibiotics, we'd rather have the bronchoscopy first before antibiotics. Even though in most places people say, no, we start antibiotics and then we do the bronchoscopy within 24 hours. The area, uh, there is an area that we can clearly see that, and this, of course, is based probably in the capabilities, not of the, how, how, what is the availability of 24 hours around the clock for the person to have a bronchoscopy immediately uh, or not. Now, going back to your second part of the question, uh, what would be the, the empiric therapy, um, we recommended that, that essentially, probably um, the empiric therapy in some patients, if the patient is immunocompromised, but doesn't have any risk factors for any opportunistic pathogen, there is even the consideration to start a person with, you know, uh, lung cancer, they're immunocompromised, but there is no other risk factors and to start the patient with the therapy as recommended in the computer acquired pneumonia guidelines that for the non-immunocompromised uh, individual. Um, now, when you start adding, and you start adding risk factors, oh, these risk factors for MRSA, these risk factors for pseudomonas, for multi-resistant gratagatid, risk factor for, uh, for fungal infection, risk factor for pneumocystis. And this is why we try to simplify, to say, okay, these are the three, four risk factors for every pathogen that once you have this present, then you start the empiric therapy. Um, then I may say that the, 
that the risk factors uh, will be uh, is as as described in the in the in the statement. Now, there is one area that was also a big discussion was should every immunocompromised patient at the time of admission should have empiric therapy for MRSA, let's say vancomycin, and for pseudomonas, let's say septacin, piperacin, tazobactam, assuming that that ceftriaxone acetromycin would be, let's say, a common initial empiric therapy for the non-immunocompromised. And the discussion was back and forth. Uh, and, and, and finally, the majority said, no, we don't want to say that vancomycin and anti-pseudomonas is necessary for everybody. You need to have risk factors for MRSA or pseudomonas. Even though some members of the panel say, if the person is immunocompromised, I will always cover for MRSA or pseudomonas, but this was the minority. Now, and here is another thing that we discuss a lot is that what is the implication of severity of pneumonia in your empiric therapy? And the question here was that if the patient has pneumonia, immunocompromised that requires ICU admission, means you have severe pneumonia. Uh, it's not that severe pneumonia by itself is a risk factor for any particular organism. But as we discussed, severe pneumonia, we don't want to miss any uh, uh, organism. And then there was an agreement that if the patient has is immunocompromised, the fact that the patient has pneumonia in the ICU probably is enough for the person to be covered for MRSA and resistant gram negative drugs. Then this is assume a risk factor not to miss these organisms. Then, uh, but in all these recommendations, I have to tell you there was a lot of back and forth and a lot of discussion. This is why I say that it's important for the clinician also look at the supplemental material because some of this discussion was added to the supplemental material. Thank you for highlighting the uh, differing opinions of the clinicians and the fact that it was a back and forth. Dr. Platt, I do want to pull you into this discussion specifically on the immunocompromised uh, patient, simply because you may offer us an international perspective. Um, uh, what were your thoughts uh, hearing the discussion that we've just had now on uh, workup and uh, empiric therapy? I think we are still talking about the immunocompromised patient, just to make this clear, because the paper, what I wrote, was uh, a statement on the ATS guidelines, international perspective on the immunocompetent patients. But I participated in the paper of uh, Dr. Ramirez, and I was involved in the discussion. And um, basically, we have the same approach that we go for targeted bronchoscopy and that we would primarily cover the core pathogens for empiric treatment. This was also something what we found in our paper, so on the immunocompetent patients, that there is a different approach all over the world towards uh, pathogens outside the core pathogens, particularly regarding pseudomonas and uh, MRSA in community-acquired pneumonia. It doesn't matter if the, in the immunocompromised or in the immunocompetent host. So we had the feeling that in the U.S. U.S.-based physicians are more prone to cover also MRSA and community-acquired pneumonia, whereas in many other countries of the world, uh, it would not be empirically covered either in the immunocompromised nor in the immunocompetent host. So what were your findings uh, in your paper that you published on the international perspective on the IDSA, uh, community, ATS, community-acquired guidelines? Um, what were your findings? Um, which were recommendations did you welcome and which ones were you slightly more critical of? Maybe you first want to explain why we thought it was necessary to write such a paper. The ATS, oh, definitely. IDSA, Go ahead. Okay. The ATS, IDSA guidelines... Um, uh, are widely distributed all over the world. And I think um, that uh, the ATS and IDSA have not only a responsibility for the U.S., but also for other countries, because many countries that do not have their own national guidelines actually adopt these guidelines. But uh, this is difficult for infectious diseases compared to non-infectious diseases, because we all know that uh, the evolution of pathogens is very fast. It's much faster than human evolution. That's why the, the spectrum uh, of pathogens can change quickly, and there are also regional differences. 
And that's why we were asking 14 key opinion leaders from uh, 10 different countries over five continents what they think about the ATS-IDSA guideline. And they were not involved in the ATS-IDSA guideline. And we were asking three specific questions. What changes uh, did they welcome compared to the 2007 guidelines? What changes did they oppose or what recommendations did they oppose? And what recommendations they found useful but would not work in their own country? And uh, there was no formal consensus process, uh, so not a Delphi process like in the paper of Dr. Ramirez. Um, and I also had to write this in the abstract uh, because uh, via email there was a heavy discussion for instance, pro and con, the use of uh, corticosteroids in community-acquired pneumonia. And there was also a heavy discussion in the use of procalcitonin. But uh, when I want to summarize, um, the most agreement, well, actually, basically everyone agreed that the term healthcare-associated pneumonia was abandoned. You may remember that this was introduced in the uh, hospital-acquired pneumonia guidelines, this term in 2004. And the idea behind was that basically every patient in a nursing home who develops pneumonia is not, per definition, hospital-acquired pneumonia, but should be treated as hospital-acquired pneumonia. That means uh, would receive a double or triple treatment. And most experts, uh, I think also many experts in the U.S., but most experts outside the U.S. thought that this is an overtreatment. So in Europe, this term was never adopted. And then there were a lot of um, surveillance studies that showed that, indeed, some patients from nursing homes may have more MRSA, may have more multi-resistant gram-negatives, may have more pseudomonas. But if you cover all of these pathogens in every patient coming from a nursing home because you put this into an SOP, you have a huge overtreatment. You have even, according to some retrospective papers, you have even increased mortality. And that's why this term was abandoned, and um, this was really welcomed by, by all the 14 experts. So there was a huge agreement on, on this point. Um, the second one was macrolide monotherapy. So in the old guidelines, um, there was a recommendation, a strong recommendation for using macrolides in outpatients. This was now a little bit more restrictive in the new version of the ATS-IDSA guidelines, it's more conditional recommendations for outpatients based on resistance levels. And the resistance level was 25% uh, of macrolide resistance in pneumococci. And most experts uh, felt that this is kind of arbitrary because there was no rationalization in the guideline. Um, on a personal note, I think it's, a, it's quite a good uh, estimate or a good guess to use 25% because um, in outpatients you have mild pneumonia with a low mortality. Then not all pneumonias are caused by pneumococcus, despite, even if pneumococcus is the most frequent bacterial pathogen. And if you kind of multiply those likelihoods, 25% uh, I think is reasonable. However, some experts said uh, by doing this, you may even threaten patients if you do not adequately treat a pneumococcal pneumonia. And uh, also in Germany, for instance, macrolide would be uh, the second or third choice. So the first choice is always uh, beta-lactam with good activity against the pneumococcus and also against Haemophilus influenzae because Haemophilus influenzae is the second frequent bacterial pathogen. And we all know that macrolides do not really work in them. We have published a paper ourselves based on the CapNet cohort where we've seen that if you treat, it was retrospective, but if you treat Haemophilus influenza with macrolides, you have more treatment failures. Then there was a, a very, I would say, even emotional discussion <laughs> on the use of corticosteroids in pneumonia. So most um, experts said it was a good idea that the guideline made crystal clear that it's not a standard treatment and should only be used in septic shock. Um, the reason behind is obviously that in the U.S., after some meta-analyses that have shown that there may be some benefit 
of steroids in community-acquired pneumonia, a lot of physicians have started to use them uh, routinely. So particularly the colleagues from the US were in favor of this uh, strong recommendation against the routine use of steroids in community-acquired pneumonia. However, some experts that have even published uh, papers themselves in specific subgroups of community-acquired pneumonia, particularly in ICU patients that are not yet in septic shock, um, said that the wording of this recommendation against steroids is not really perfect because it was so strict that um, it would actually exclude using steroids in ICU patients and According to their opinion, there are a lot of data that show that steroids have a value in patients with treatment failure and in ICU patients, even if they are not yet in septic shock. Um, and this was even hard for me to find a kind of compromise in the wording that all authors agree with. And that's why we also wrote in that there was no formal consensus process. And we tried to kind of reflect the different opinions of the experts and uh, also tried to do some weighing by saying how many were in favor of this recommendation or against this recommendation. Yeah, and finally, uh, we were asking for recommendations that uh, the experts found useful but would not work in their specific region. And this was quite interesting, uh, particularly the use of fluoroquinolones in outpatients was uh, opposed by colleagues from South America and colleagues from Africa, and they had a very good reason for it because they say in our region we have a lot of patients with tuberculosis that may present like community-acquired pneumonia, and if you lose, use fluoroquinolones, um, the patient gets better for a couple of days, you discharge the patient, but then the patient has a relapse, and you kind of uh, postpone the diagnosis of tuberculosis because fluoroquinolone, even a couple of shots, may turn TB cultures negative, but they will not treat TB, as we all know. So this was a very interesting point. And also regarding macrolides, uh, some patients, uh, some colleagues from Spain, for instance, and also from, I think, from Japan, said that macrolide resistance in pneumococcus is quite high in their regions, and that's why they even more opposed the use of macrolides in outpatients. Yeah, I thought your yeah. discussion about the fluoroquinolones was really interesting because um, patients could potentially spread um, uh, the infection more if they went home and uh, were untreated. Um, and then I also thought the discussion on the corticosteroids were interesting because, especially in light of the recent um, data that's come out for steroids for um, COVID-19. Dr. Hill, I wanted to turn to you and get your impression of the uh, 2019 ATS-IDSA uh, community-acquired pneumonia guidelines and what your uh, takeaway was from it, or if you had any comments about it. Uh, thank you. I mean, I think that these are very useful internationally, um, and that helps clinicians guide uh, people how to manage community-acquired pneumonia, uh, and this is an immunocompetent. So I think that's really helpful because it will standardize investigations and management and ultimately by standardized investigations and management will improve outcomes with less morbidity. I particularly like the fact that it's cleared up this HCAP phenomenon and they've, you know, they've identified it's not a useful entity and I quite like the fact that they're better focusing on those that have got risk factors for multidrug resistant pathogens. Again, um, just like the immunocompromise that highlighted the importance of microbiological diagnostics, particularly in inpatients, um, suggesting, you know, um, sputum and blood cultures. If I'm honest, I don't think it's gone far enough. I don't think it's really entered the true debate about getting uh, proper sampling of the area that's affected by the pneumonia and doing modern diagnostics. Just like I described earlier, I think that we should be doing more imaging using computed tomography and targeted bronchoscopy lavage in an ideal world if the patient is fit enough for it. I very much liked the fact that they've come to a conclusion that actually that not using procalcitonin routinely to decide whether 
to treat or not was helpful. I thought it was useful reading the editorial and the discussion about it because, you know, some clinicians find that procalcitonin allows you to stop antibiotics earlier. So I think that was helpful. I like the, you know, the debate about steroids. Um, and it's very interesting because, you know, one of the treatments for COVID pneumonia is dexamethasone. Um, along with antiviral remdesivir. So it's interesting that these are two proven treatments that are helpful in COVID pneumonia. I do accept there's a lack of evidence base to say that steroids should be used routinely in community-acquired pneumonia, and I think that was the right conclusion the guidelines came up with. But, you know, guidelines are guidelines, and I think that clinicians, if they've got a very severe pneumonia, then they would consider use of adjunct steroids. I then found an interesting debate about macrolides. I'm not a fan of macrolide monotherapy because it's got a lack of effect with the pneumococcus with high resistance rates, and it's got a lack of effect with hemophilus influenzae. So I much prefer targeted monotherapy, you know, with penicillin or doxycycline-based treatments. Um, so, but I did like the fact that guidelines introduced that if you've got above a threshold of resistance and, and macrolides that you would avoid using it. So overall, um, I thought the guidelines were excellent. I think it has really moved the field forward and I certainly found it very informative. So I do want to ask you one follow-up question on that, Dr. Hill. Um, uh, my understanding from what the, the, the panel and the new self are recommending is, you know, maybe having a better sample so that you know what you're treating. That obviously has the spin-off of requiring more imaging, more uh, procedures, uh, more diagnostics, and that enters the realm of uh, who's going to pay for it. Um, and obviously yeah. there's very limited resources. So do we need to have cost-effectiveness studies performed? Do we need to show that... Um, that we're actually benefiting our patients, uh, both um, physically in terms of uh, mortality, um, morbidity, as well as ensuring that the, uh, the taxpayer or the person who's paying for um, all this testing is getting value for their um, uh, for their money. Yeah, so I think that's an excellent point, and, and I think that's the contrary argument to what I'm suggesting. And, you know, my view is that pneumonia for inpatients has got a really high mortality. We know that the mortality is at least 8 to 10%, and it's higher if you've got even more severe pneumonia. We do not accept mortality rates like that in any surgical field at all. So we've got a condition that's got high mortality. I think we've got a duty for patients to do the right investigations, and that including computed tomography and to do targeted lavage as long as the patient is fit enough. I think that is the caveat to what I'm saying. I think we do need further studies, as you're saying, to show the cost effectiveness of that approach. But my belief is that by having targeted therapy, it will probably be cost-saving because it will avoid the broad use or broad-spectrum antibiotics, it will allow targeted antibiotics. That will mean less antibiotic-related side effects, less morbidity, and likely improved outcomes. So I'm a big fan for going for targeted investigations so that you can get pathogen-directed therapy, as I said, to hopefully improve outcomes. But I think you're absolutely right. Studies are needed to address this. There's a lack of research studies in this area. So, and Dr. Pletz, uh, your comments on that? Yeah, thanks for asking because I wanted to add a comment and assist Dr. Hill. I'm, for instance, a big fan in molecular diagnostics. I think what we learned during the current pandemic is the massive burden of uh, non-respiratory, uh, sorry, of non-influenza respiratory viruses. And, um, for instance, if you speak about cost-effectiveness study, I would not overrate them because they are short-lived. If you think, for instance, about PCRs 10 years ago, they were very expensive, or the multiplex PCRs, for instance, even a couple of years ago, were still very expensive in Germany, for instance, between 150 to 200 euro. And now, during the current pandemics, uh, we see that the prices go down because there is technical progress. There are a lot of manufacturers that produce different tests. There are competitions. And this, uh, that's my, my hope, will improve our diagnostics. 
And um, I also think, I mean, we live in the 21st century, but with our routine diagnostics, we identify the underlying pathogen only in one-third of the patients. So in two-thirds of the patients, we actually do not know what we are doing regarding our anti-infective treatment. And uh, again, if we uh, kind of uncover the burden of non-influenza respiratory viruses, we may even stimulate in the years to come the industry or researchers to find solutions. For instance, some manufacturers now working on vaccines against respiratory deciduous virus. And this would have not been possible if we wouldn't have studies that have shown that RS3 indeed can cause severe pneumonias, not only in children, as we know for 40 years out of the textbooks, but also in the elderly adults. And also, I think what we need to see regarding the burden of disease is we should not stop when the patient is discharged out of the hospital and just look at the in-hospital mortality, because we know that pneumonia can cause uh, myocardial infarction and stroke. And the risk for those cardiovascular events is increased for several weeks, even after the patient was discharged with pneumonia. And we have only very little data about this. So what was striking for me, for instance, during the current lockdown, um, that our cardiologist and neurologist said, oh, there is no patient, or we, we have much less patients with stroke and with myocardial infarction. And in the beginning, they just thought patients were afraid to go to the hospital. But um, I think, and uh, others as well, that this may just reflect that the lockdown due to the pandemics has also kind of decreased the transmission of other viruses and has therefore also decreased the subsequent complications. And I think all this together points that we need a better diagnostics, uh, and I think cost-effectiveness studies should not really kind of stop the progress in medicine. Okay, so Dr. Hill, Dr. Pletz is arguing um, and probably supporting you in saying that with time, the cost of these diagnostics comes down, um, and it sounds like he's supporting your idea of uh, molecular diagnostics. Yeah, and I think, oh, can I, uh, oh, sorry, I was just going to say that I think that we've lived in an era for a long, long time of, you know, identifying the cause of pneumonia in under 30% of cases, and I think we really need to move into a modern world where we don't accept that, and we try and use modern methodologies like molecular diagnostics and try and actually truly understand what is pneumonia both in the immunocompetent and in the immunocompromised. Dr. Ramirez? No, yeah, I just wanted to uh, emphasize uh, what Dr. Pletcher, Dr. Hill just mentioned, that uh, and another, uh, probably one uh, weakness of all our uh, documents is that, that we start with the assumption that the patient has community-acquired pneumonia because we are... Uh, now, I remember that, that with our group, uh, there was a discussion if we should start to define what is community acquired pneumonia in the immunocompromised host. And this was, there was some discussion, but it was very difficult because it's going to be very difficult sometimes to define. And I want to emphasize also that from the, from the practicing physician, sometimes when we are doing this invasive diagnostic workup in patients with community acquired pneumonia, non-immunocompromised or immunocompromised. Sometimes these diagnostic workers help us to define that this was a non-infectious process. Um, then it's, it's critically important not only to define the etiology, because sometimes there are other clinical entities that may look like covid acquired pneumonia. Uh, and, but also we all agree we are discussing empiric therapy, but every time that we use in every question that we said we increase empiric therapy to cover this or that pathogen, there was always the caveat that after appropriate microbiological studies were obtained to be sure that we do pathogen-directed therapy. Then uh, without good microbiological workup, we cannot do pathogen-directed therapy. That is the goal of all the guidelines. Then I want to uh, agree with my colleagues that it's, it's critically important to have a very aggressive um, <clears throat> microbiological workup. This is why um, when, when Dr. Pletz was discussing 
uh, we're reviewing uh, with uh, the, the community acquired pneumonia guidelines in the non-immunocompromised. For example, in my institution, to me, if the patient is sick enough to be admitted for pneumonia, even if it's not immunocompromised, is sick enough to have spiron cultures and blood cultures. We don't have any question for this. Now, the guidelines say, if, you know, you do a spiron, you suspect MRSA, well, we have a different approach. We are more aggressive and everybody gets a spiron, everybody, everybody gets blood cultures. Now, some people say, well, but blood cultures are only positive uh, five, ten percent of the time and it's not cost-effective. Well, but the question is, in this 5%, when you have a positive blood culture, to me, this compensates the other 95%. Then uh, the cost effectiveness is, is a matter that, 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 to me, the basic microbiological workup should, but again, I'm talking now individually, should happen in all hospitalized patients and try to define that this patient qualifies for a spiron culture, this patient doesn't qualify for a spiron culture. Sometimes I notice that, that we can make things more complicated for the practicing physician to be thinking, okay, if I suspect this, I get a spiron culture. If I suspect that, I don't get a spiron culture. In our approaches, for us, microbiological studies are important in all hospitalized patients with covid acquired pneumonia because the fact that you are hospitalized, I was already mentioned, you already have 5% chance of mortality, more than 5% chance of mortality, then based on severity of disease, you need to have good microbiology. Okay, I think you've highlighted the uh, importance of uh, uh, the, difference in, uh, the different views of clinicians um, and also the importance of um, looking for alternative diagnosis if it isn't community-acquired pneumonia. We are uh, heading towards the end of the podcast, and I do want to give each of you an opportunity to have some concluding remarks, either on the implications of the studies um, that you're involved in or else uh, uh, any comments on uh, key studies that are needed um, uh, to advance um, uh, the future research gaps. I'll start with Dr. Pletz um, and then got to, uh, go to Dr. Ramirez, and then I'll let Dr. Hill have the final word. Uh, Dr. Pletz? So what, uh, first of all, I think the last part of the discussion, we all led that we are in favor for more uh, microbiological diagnostics and modern methods. I think this is very important and uh, this will really move the field forward. Uh, regarding our paper, um, I just saw the heavy discussion on steroids. I still have it in mind. The email is going backward and forward. And I think we also need different uh, studies uh, for different therapeutic studies. And I've, what I want to point out is the, the remap cup trial that's um, adaptive study design all over the world that tries to answer, for instance, the question uh, which patient will benefit from steroid treatment and uh, who will not benefit. Because I think if we, in guideline processes, um, we can just make a recommendation that fits for the average. And uh, as Dr. Ramirez pointed out already, we need more individualized approach. And I think for further research, we need to have more specific questions or more adaptive trial designs so that we really get an idea what uh, specific treatment the individual patient has a benefit from. And I personally also think that artificial intelligence will help us. Uh, for instance, we recently tried to answer the question, which patient basically has a benefit from macrolides? on the regular walk because this is still an open question despite all the studies we've did. And I think other randomized controlled trials in the traditional manner will not answer this study. And uh, actually the algorithm came up with three easy questions to answer this. We have published this in the European Respiratory Journal. I think that's why for future studies, uh, uh, artificial intelligence approach may really help us to make better individualized but still evidence-based decisions. Those are very important comments. Uh, Dr. Ramirez? Uh, yes. Uh, probably uh, one important consideration for me in the case of uh, our uh, working group of covid pneumonia and immunocompromised uh, adults was that, that this is a topic that we, we regularly meet face-to-face uh, -to, -face to discuss uh, pneumonia research for, for so many years with different colleagues from uh, 
uh, international uh, groups. Uh, and for the last 10 years, we've been saying there is no data and there is no consensus on computer quality pneumonia the immunocompromised host. Uh, and really, even though several of us thought that this was an important consideration, we always thought that because there is not good evidence, there is not good studies on immunocompromised, essentially we couldn't get uh, a consensus. Uh, but now we recognize that, well, if there is no evidence, uh, at least we were able to get an expert opinion. Now, we know that in the pyramid of evidence, this is a very low evidence, but I would say that it was important to have at least an expert opinion to have some framework. And we think that this document, uh, and we hope that documents going to have two primary goals. One is to help you know, physicians to deal with immunocompromised individuals. And now it's probably one third of our community of pneumonia, and the number of immunocompromised individuals is going to keep increasing. And not every hospital has the specialist to treat the patient with a not the lung transplant or the or the bone marrow transplant patient with all the immunosuppressive medications. This is one aspect to try to help the physician. But another aspect was to develop a framework that's going to help us moving forward with our clinical research studies to say, okay, this is going to be the basic and try to coordinate prospective clinical trials based on the on the on the consensus. Then uh, two primary goals, helping uh, physicians that are uh, seeing patients with community acquired pneumonia, that are immunocompromised, and second, to help us as clinical investigators to have a framework to move the research forward. Thank you very much, Dr. Ramirez. Uh, Dr. Hill will give you the final word. I agree with all my colleagues there, and I'd just like to thank people for putting the effort into creating these consensus statements. They're going to allow evidence-based practice based on what evidence we have available, or if not available, the best expert advice. In my view, this will give consistency in the management of CAP internationally, and I think that's really important. I think, as I said earlier, I think a key deficiency is understanding what's the etiology of community-acquired pneumonia, both in the immunocompetent and immunocompromised. And I think we need to do further research in this field. And that will allow, hopefully, pathogen-directed therapy, and that will hopefully reduce morbidity and improve clinical outcomes. Thank That's you. That's an outstanding conclusion. Um, a very big thank you to Drs. Ramirez, Hill, and Pletz for a really interesting conversation on the management of community-acquired pneumonia, both in immunocompetent and immunocompromised patients. And a big thank you to our chess community for joining us. I'm Dominic Pepper, and this is the Chess Podcast.